Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to our Thursday online Dharma. Until further notice, online. It's good to be here with you all. Um, and uh, very happy to um, share the evening with uh, an old friend and uh, highly respected Dharma teacher, many years, uh, Gregory Kramer, uh, who is going to be uh, sharing uh, from his new book, um, really wonderful book called A Whole Life Path. A Lay Buddhist's Guide to Crafting a Dhamma-Infused Life. Highly recommended by Bhikkhu Bodhi, among many people. This remarkable book offers a perspective on the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path that is at once solidly rooted in the canon canonical texts of early Buddhism, yet astutely attuned to the needs of contemporary readers seeking to navigate frantic directionless culture uh, and many, many others who given it a glowing endorsement. I'm in there someplace uh, with a blurb. Uh, really excellent contribution. So um, Gregory, it's so, um, so good to have you here with us. And uh, before you get started, um, why don't I, I want to, um, uh, Offer the the Donna tonight to uh, to Gregory. So why don't you put in in the chat box uh, where they they can uh, offer Donna if uh, if people would like to do that. Uh, can you you have that? Uh, yes, oh wait, maybe. Okay. Oh maybe I wonder if it goes. To, yeah, if it goes to everyone, uh, or if it goes to me, then I'll I'll type it in. So go ahead, you type that in. There it is. PayPal, is it PayPal comma or dot? Yeah, I'm not actually sure on the uh, uh, protocol. So, but it's, you go to PayPal and it's that, oh. it's that account. So, okay. Gregory yeah. at meta.org is, is the PayPal account. Got it. Okay. Uh, Thank you. What, what's that? Sorry. I said, that's kind of you. Thank you. Oh, happy to, to support you. You've been doing so much uh, Dharma service for so many years and really happy to have you here. While I'm at it, I'm going to uh, put something of my own in there. Um, Want to mention, as I've been doing, uh, the Awakening Joy course, which is going to be starting uh, end of January. I love doing it. Um, and it goes for five months. Uh, another good way to practice the, the teachings in, a, uh, in an accessible way, inclining towards well-being. And uh, a number of people have taken it before and I invite you to, uh, to do it with, with us. Uh, there's a modest fee, but no one is turned away because of finances. So check out the website. Also, uh, if you are somebody who needs uh, continuing education credits where we offer 30 CEUs for, for the course. So you might check that out too. So Gregory, 
Um, it's all yours. Why don't you um, share with you, uh, with us, your approach to the Eightfold Path uh, and uh, share the Dharma. Thanks, James. So uh, when he invited me to speak with you, um, James uh, offered a kind of a challenge. He said, so, uh, you know, why is this any different than all the other Eightfold Path teachings out there? I mean, what, what makes, what's the difference between a whole life path and just what everybody knows about the Eightfold Path already? So kind of threw down the gauntlet, you know, sort of like these guys know about the Noble Eightfold Path, that kind of thing. And it's a good, it's, it's a good question because uh, in some sense, I suppose it was the question I asked myself. And, you know, before I talk about that directly, I really want to um, ground us in why we talk about a path at all, because that maybe gives us some sense of why every moment matters. If we understand this human dilemma, you know, this human tangle. So even as we're speaking now, you know, I'm talking, you're listening, but we're all in this moment together. You're attuning to my voice. You're watching me perhaps. And a whole lifetime in each of you, a whole lifetime of conditioning is being stimulated. And of course, the words, you know, I could say something that might be off or that you don't agree with or that you love, but also the, the appearance, you know, another old white Buddhist teacher for, for one thing, you know, a male, another guy, uh, the tone of my voice, you know, you're listening and even if you're not trying to pay attention, there's something being conveyed by just hearing this voice, right? And um, so complex is our uh, response to each moment of contact with the world. And one of the, you know, lessons for me anyway, and I think for everybody who practices uh, from Insight Dialogue, which some of you may know as a relational insight meditation practice, is that when the mind becomes quiet and attuned, mindfulness grows, concentration begins to settle and you're in contact with another, you begin to see that in that moment of contact, is so much unfolding because when what's perceived is another human being, you know, thousands of years of evolution are coming into being invoked in your responsiveness. And so, you know, so here we are in a loop and you, in insight dialogue, you see that, but what's, really the point now 
is that in addition to our incredible sensitivity to light and sound, to wanting food, to wanting pleasure of all kinds, the human part of that, wanting pleasure from and with humans and fear and desire with humans um, is an enormously powerful uh, aspect of the whole of the human experience, right? So throw in that, you know, we go from moment to moment, all of us in a culture that has certain tendencies towards acquisition, towards fear, towards anger, towards identity, individuality, and, uh, you know, what is around us, what is inclined, what, what's inclining us and pushing us or, or orienting us through media, you know, through uh, our friendships and through all of our contacts is this, uh, you know, kind of going, going about trying to find safety trying to find safety for the self, trying to find pleasure by filling up, by acquisition, by, uh, uh, you know, whenever we feel bad, we want something pleasurable to, you know, to kind of cover that up. The most obvious would be drugs and alcohol, but we do the same thing. You know, we, we get home, we're lonely and we go, to the refrigerator, <laughs> you know, or whatever our version of it is, we're constantly navigating the sensitive, sensitive body mind, trying to get the basic pleasures and safety and uh, 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 avoid pain, you know? And so that's happening at this sensory level and at this relational level and it's held in place by all the social tendencies. This You might say, just as we all know about systemic racism, we have systemic greed, you know? We have systemic thirst that can't be satisfied. We're part of that system. So this uh, dilemma of... Uh, constantly being on the lookout for the next food, you know, the next satisfaction, constantly on the lookout for where we can be safe with each other or just safe in the world, you know, with enough money and enough medicine and enough clothing and, and so on. So there's this, uh, it's, it's a contingent life. It's just built that way. And our sensitivity in the environment is just an enormous, enormous uh, force in our lives. So when the Buddha was speaking about suffering, you know, he's speaking about the constant gripping and holding and the tension that is existing to as we try and uh, navigate this world and it's obviously the big stuff like death 
and illness and aging and loss, uh, physical pain and so on. But it's even when those things are kind of seem settled for a while, it's that thirsting that's going on. And the tangle, the conditioning of our lives, you know, I mean, okay, so as you're sitting here, make it, you know, like, let's make it as real as we can. And you sit and, you, you know, do you feel, for example, your body sitting in your chair, just sort of noticing that. And who is it that's noticing the sitting, sort of watching your mind for a moment? Who is it that's listening to this words that Gregory is speaking? And just ask yourself, can I feel my history operating right now? Can I feel the sort of the conditioning of my, let's say, my mother and my father right now as you sit in this chair in this moment? Can I feel the urges of the body right now? Even wanting the next word to be interesting right now, right? It's not distant, right? And so the, the, way the Buddha speaks about this is cause and effect. Each moment right now as I'm speaking conditions the next moment. Every moment, every thought, every contact with the eye and the ear conditions the next moment. Just as everything you've done and everything, everybody that you've known conditions how you feel right now. You feel proud, you feel safe, you feel secure, you feel scared, you feel bored, whatever it is, moment by moment, the mind is building the world and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this, tumbling forward. So the question that I have then, and I asked myself this question is, if every moment the mind is building and rebuilding the world and conditioning the next moment. What moment could possibly not be path? What moment could possibly not be leading either to more suffering or to the diminishing of suffering? If it's just status quo and you say, oh, well, this is just a normal moment. Well, that's just conditioning. <laughs> you know, life goes on the same way you've seen it. Why even talk about a path, right? Then it's, you know, you live, you die. You have in between, maybe you have some, you know, sweet meals or some good coffee or, you know, you, you hurt yourself sometime and then you die. But is there uh, any moment of awakening, and if I may, awakening to joy, awakening to wakefulness, awakening to intelligence, 
awakening to non-harm. Awakening from the relentless push of having to get and hold and protect. That kind of awakening, right? So what moment could possibly not be path if every moment conditions the next? So asking that question, uh, my inquiry in writing this book and in living my life, really, the book comes out of my life in the Dhamma teaching and just being a human being, right? is you got this eightfold path. How can that really cover the totality of life? Life is so vast, so many aspects to it. My, you know, my clothing, <laughs> my food, my intellect, art and music, I'm a musician. Psychology, psychotherapy, social activism, justice, climate change, liberating insight, fun, sex, money, power. Can any of this be left out of the Noble Eightfold Path and, and really have it be a whole life path? By definition, I'll say no, but the problem is how do you do that? How do you understand that? How do you live that? So um, I kind of grew up in, you know, uh, the Buddhist path with, I think, an aspiration that is not at all unusual, that as soon as I started meditating, I said, this is amazing. This is great. I, I, this is how I want to live, you know? And I thought that living the path full time would look something like always being really, really mindful. And that that would be the culmination of, you know, sort of like being on retreat all the time, that kind of notion. Very, very, you know, immature, but it's, you know, it was the best I could do. And so I was talking like, oh yeah, I'm always meditating, or it's like the path is always happening. I would say that, you know, 40 years ago, I would say that. But of course it wasn't because I was off in Bozo land most of the time. And, uh, you know, just living the usual conditioned life. And then I would do retreats and that would be great. And I would wake up some more, but then I'd come back and I'd have these reactions to coming back, you know. Nothing very creative there, I'm afraid. But um, the problem was, is that I was seeing the path through this tiny little lens of insight meditation. And uh, the path was kind of a list right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It was kind of like very conceptual and out there. 
And besides, I didn't really think of it as the path. It was just called the path. The path was me sitting in meditation. And, you know, um, not really effective, I have to say. But what does the path look like when you assume that it is every single moment? What is that really like? Is that possible? Uh, and it's I'm now taking it as a given that with the tangling of the tangle of the of the mind and of our conditioning and of the life we live and all of our social and family relationships that sustain the tangle, unless it's whole life path, we're going to stay there. <laughs> you know, we're going to stay in the tangle. That's, I take that as a given. I hope that makes sense to you, or I hope you can feel some truth in that for yourselves. So over the years, uh, I kept, you know, putting myself up against this inquiry. And I have to say the real breakthrough, despite having even taught whole life path teachings and a whole life path program to the inside dialogue community multiple times, uh, and studied the discourses, you know, widely and deeply for a really long time. It took, and even, and even what I thought written, what I thought was going to be this book, uh, it took another uh, major event to get where I'm speaking from now. And that event was cancer, actually. So that was maybe, whatever, four and a half years ago, diagnosed chemotherapy, almost died from drug reaction during chemotherapy, then finished the chemotherapy after recovering from that and stem cell transplant. And then a second cancer developed because of all the changes in chemistry of my body from that. And that like got totally out of control and I had this huge surgery and it was like, I, okay, I will, you know, my mind is never going to work again. <laughs> you know, I couldn't think. I was tired all the time. Um, and aside from having been through hell, that's like whatever. That happens to a lot of people. And I, you know, my compassion grew enormously. Uh, but what really was going on was death was coming right in all the time. It was so intense for so long that all of my flagellating to not, to be able to forget death and fragility and incapacity, I couldn't do that. I couldn't manage to, you know, uh, uh, rest easily in delusion. Uh, and when I started to, be able to think again, I could either finish the whole life path book because it was, you know, so much was done 
or I could do what I really felt was the most important book I would write before dying, which is on relational understanding of the Dhamma, a relational Dhamma. So if I only can do one book, that's the one I'm going to do. But I took a gamble. And the gamble was, I think I'm going to live long enough to write both these books. So I'm going to finish up this one that's almost done, which is now the book we're talking about, The Whole Life Path. The book, however, when I drop back into it from the perspective of the intensity of um, my mortality, of human mortality, uh, and looked at you know, what is this path really? It just blew it out of the water. And what I had written didn't cut it. It actually, I didn't think it was, I mean, it was good, but really blandly normal in terms of Eightfold Path. So as I rewrote basically the whole thing, um, what came out, what was coming out and what became the source of this work then was this uh, intense focus on uh, how is the Dhamma really alive? So it wasn't just about Noble Eightfold Path. It was about the living, living of the Dhamma. And the Noble Eightfold Path is a construct, just as the Dhamma is a construct. But living the Dhamma is where, you know, it comes into embodiment, into sort of every moment. And with the intensity of death, every moment became, you know, intensively alive. So that was, that was sort of the, the ignition, you might say, the catalyst. And so I began to look at what is going on here in my own approach to this that has this kind of spark of Dhamma being so salient, so alive, you know, with all the imperfections in this conditioned being, of course, but the, this uh, kind of uh, vibrancy of these teachings, of these living teachings. And from that process, I discerned what became these six tenets of a whole life path. And I'm going to say a little bit about them because then when we talk briefly, because we only have so much time in one evening, about the path factors, the path factors as living experiences come alive because we were coming from these uh, foundational, shall we say, axioms or assumptions, these six tenets of the whole life path. And the first of them, uh, we've actually been talking about a little bit in a sideways way, it's ground in the Dhamma. So that's the reference point. And the real point there is, if we just go by what our clever minds think up, how to navigate this life and wake up and, you know, um, 
not behave in unskillful and conditioned ways all the time. Um, we're just going to be functioning from what grandma taught us with what mom and dad taught us with what I learned in school and all the, you know, the composite of all my experiences and maybe a little bit of Dhamma that I, you know, maybe read somewhere. But if I don't have a wisdom element outside this conditioned system, then I will just continue the, that's, you know, that uh, conditioned behavior and dukkha, 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 you know, suffering is going to, you know, confusion, greed, hatred, all that stuff is going to be the result. So it's really just acknowledging that uh, this wisdom reference is of essential value. And for me, the way I re refer to that is primarily the early Buddhist teachings. But I'm, I'm not a fundamentalist, but I just have a great respect for those, for that kernel. So ground in the Dhamma becomes, uh, you know, our, where we start. And the second tenet is engage all the teachings as practices. I realized that what I was doing and what the Buddha, and I'm going to go further and say what I strongly believe the Buddha was teaching when he offered all those discourses, thousands and thousands of talks that have been handed down as well as possible through time, that none of them, none of them were theory. None of them were for conceptual entertainment. So even the most apparently um, philosophical or metaphysical or abstract or conceptual teachings like dependent origination, the khandas, you know, the aggregates, um, and, you know, factors of awakening and so on and so forth. All these teachings are all practices. So when you read something like uh, impermanent suffering and non-self, you know, well, what does that mean? Well, you actually stop and you look at experience through the lens of, let's say, just as an example, impermanence. And that you do that all the time. That's not something you do just on meditation retreat. So it's a life practice. And if you're reading about, you know, uh, de dependent origination, which is this very subtle uh, complex and exquisitely beautiful teaching. And you just look at it as something that's sort of out there. Isn't that amazing? What a, what a depth psychology. Wow. Then that's great. That's nice, but it's almost like intellectual entertainment. But when you say I'm, I'm looking at experience and I'm taking this guidance about clinging and craving and grasping and, you know, uh, becoming and so on and so forth. And I look at experience through that lens and now I'm putting the teachings into practice, right? So all the teachings are practices. And now all of a sudden, when you go to the discourses or what, you know, however it is you get your, uh, you know, access to the teachings, you realize, oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to do that. Let's see what happens. 
it's a very different attitude than, you know, it's just sort of out there talking about stuff. Um, and then the third is, and this is really critical, exclude no moment, no experience, and no teaching. So we talked about not excluding any moment, right? Like if each moment, like right now, even as we're talking, and this talking is a practice, we're on the path now, we're practicing right view, aren't we? We're, you know, exploring the nature of things and so on. And each moment conditions the next, conditions the next. So no moment is left out. So all of a sudden the mindfulness that we've been practicing on the cushion just vibrates up into our lives in the most dynamic and powerful way. So no moment is left out, but also critically, no experience, right? So now, again, we, you know, I gave a sort of a quick list earlier. We're not leaving out our time at work or, you know, our time scratching our head or our time washing the dishes or our time putting our socks on or a time, you know, when we're sexually engaged or when we're stepping out for a cigarette or having a beer. It's like, okay, where's the path now? Maybe you don't have the beer, maybe you do. That's, I'm not gonna talk about that right now. When we uh, are spending money, when we're meditating, ob it's obvious, right? That's clearly, no. we're not leaving that moment out, but are we leaving all the other moments out, you know? As we're, hopping on the bus, as we're opening the front door. So no experience is left out, no moment is left out, and no teaching is left out. So we may like the teachings on mindfulness, and we may like even the teachings on, well, let's say joy, but do we also take in the teachings on reflections on whatever, impermanence or death, do we take in, do we let in the teachings that are difficult to understand, like, you know, rebirth, or let's say letting in and letting, letting ourselves be challenged by the teachings on certain refined states of mind, or perhaps, you know, like, wow, I remember a sutta where the Buddha's teaching young monks how to brush their teeth. You know, what's that? What can I get from that? You know, who knows? Don't leave any of it out and see what happens. Because remember, <laughs> this is all in service of freedom from a tangle that's really pretty tangled. If you Have you looked at your mind lately? <laughs> I'll speak for myself. You know, I look at my mind and it's like, wow, you know, if I'm not really doing this, then all of that conditioning is just operating, just like psh, stealth, you know, going through life, just like I was taught to, you know. Um, so the fourth tenet is to find the, the teaching, each teaching here and now, right? So whatever you're doing, whatever circumstances you're in, in any moment, you can say, how's the path alive now? And always assume 
that it is and then see what you find. You know, it's, it's, it's a flip from saying, I have to go out and do the path from saying the path is always happening. How is it happening now? Let's figure it out. So I gave you an example a moment ago, but let's do that again. Right now, you know, you're sitting, I'm looking at people's different living rooms and bedrooms and whatever those rooms are that you're in. I can see them, some plain walls, some doorways, some few books over here and some, you know, oh, some more books over here. And here's some painting over on the wall over there. In this moment, sitting where you are now, how is the path operating? How is it alive right now? What's happening? This is kind of a path factor inventory, I call it. So is right view being practiced right now? We already decided that it is, right? This is the voice of another, that's me, and wise attention, hopefully that's you, are the necessary conditions for the arising of right view, straight out of the suttas. So this, to the ear, to your ear, right now. We're practicing samaditi, right view. So you, can you feel the path, the texture of the path right now as I speak and as you listen? No one's shaking their head, yes, I wish someone would. Oh, there's someone doing that, yeah. Because I mean, you know, this is, we're in relationship here, even with our little sort of Hollywood squares routine going on with Zoom, this is a relationship. So yeah, so, okay, so practicing right view. What about right intention? Are we practicing right intention now? So we have to understand what that means. And right intention is the aiming of the mind, the inclining of the mind towards, let's say, relinquishment rather than acquisition, towards compassion rather than cruelty, you know? So in this talk, in talking about this stuff, are, can you sense how you're aiming the mind, how it's like this is a contribution to the direction of your life, right? So it's a practice. We're practicing samasankapa right now. Right speech, which includes the right listening, of course. So it's right communication, right expression. Does it matter that it goes through the digital domain? Does it matter that there's Zoom? What about when you write an email? Is that gonna be a practice of right speech or a blog or a photograph? Maybe even a piece of music that you make, right? So you get a, begin to get a sense of, okay, the path can always be alive if we understand how is it operating now as a basic tenet? It is operating. Each moment is conditioning the next. How can I see that? And um, the next one fits in really intimately with that. And it's let all the teachings in fully. So one way I talk about this is no arm's length Buddhism. You know, just sort of out there conceptual, sort of like the, you know, the, you know, 
the toilet reading version of Dhamma, you know, I call it what you will, but the Dhamma that is, you know, kind of out there a little bit more like a hobby than something that is going to liberate you. <laughs> so uh, what does that mean though? It's like, okay, now Uh, this aspect of um, you know how is my practice how is let's let's stick with something like right view because it has this voice of another and wise attention aspect it's in other words it is clearly our practice right now so you can be listening to what I'm saying and have it be uh, maybe entertaining or uh, maybe you feel some distance from it because of uh, the Zoom interface and you can't, you know, really take in the full bandwidth of this teacher and his particular expression. Or maybe you're just kind of tired or something like that. But whatever does get in, whatever touches, like this notion of every moment is path, can you let that all the way in? Can you let it down through your throat? Can you let it down into your chest and your heart and your belly? Can you let it make you quiver or can it, can it excite you in a wholesome way? Right, so letting the teachings in fully includes when they're beautiful and inspiring. And of course it includes when they're challenging, right? When they're uh, scary or maybe they're inviting you to let go of something that you feel pretty attached to. Well, that's fine. You don't have to let go, but let that in and, and feel the conflict, feel the difficulty. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Um, and then the last one, again, we already talked about some, and that is that engage the teachings individually in relationship and socially. So when you're with your friends, the path is alive. And if you have spiritual friends, friends who share the path, then that's extraordinarily powerful. I'm sure you've heard the story, you know, where uh, Ananda's really excited. <laughs> he says to the Buddha, oh, it's wonderful, Lord. It's wonderful. It's so great. Spiritual friendship, it's half the holy life. And the Buddha says, oh, no, don't say that, Ananda. It's the entire holy life. Wow, really? Really? Do you think that he was kidding? <laughs> or just trying to keep Ananda from getting too wise alecky? No, he was serious. Our friendships keep the path alive. They provide examples. Spiritual friends in the way of teachers, like let's say James is a spiritual friend who's offering Dhamma. Your friends with whom you speak about things that matter your friends who are ethically strong, 
and inspire you to be ethically strong? The conversations that you have that really touch the the essential things of living a, a good life, a wise life. And so in any moment of relationship, the path is alive then too. And then we say, how? And socially, you know, right action is a good example for social. And, you know, in the chapter on right action, I directly deal with what has been a historical um, challenge of individual responsibility and individual sense of me and my path and social justice with a basis in early Buddhist teachings to see the, the reciprocity, the compassion and the social care that's built into the early teachings and is often assumed to just be instantiated in later Buddhism, in the Bodhisattva vow and so on. Not at all. So this aspect of engaging the teaching socially says, do I only care about me? <laughs> is, this, is that really the point of the path? And the deeper you read, the more deeply you come to understand that it is, uh, uh, well, from the Acrobat Sutta, you know, um, you care for me, I care for you, and together we'll manage our acrobatic stunt. And the Buddha is saying, yeah, that's right. That's how it is. Caring for others, you care for yourself. Caring for yourself is an act of caring for others. And he unpacks that. Very powerful stuff. So understanding the whole of the path that way makes us ask, well, how is the practice of well, an easy one, right? Speech, action, and livelihood. Those are the ethical factors, right? Well, clearly they're relational, right? Because everything has to do with creating safety and harmony and the mindfulness required to do that, the wisdom that's required for right action and right speech, the right livelihood and the movement of resources, the requisites, the clothing we wear, are all uh, social uh, acts with social impact. So, uh, but what about the social aspect and the relational aspect of right mindfulness? Practices like inside dialogue, where you actually practice that. Mindfulness established internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Very powerful and, you know, uh, uh, opening this door to a whole life path. So I'll, I'll close this and see if there's maybe a question or two because time is short. But I want to just touch the path factor specifically um, a little bit just to give you a sense of breadth. And if, you, if it interests you, um, you know, the book really goes into some um, uh, depth in each path factor in a way that hopefully uh, brings it to life, right? 
So that's the whole life path as an actual living possibility, right? So in right view, I address the question of the power and role of the thinking mind and conceiving mind uh, in the Buddhist path. And it's, it's a big role. The Buddha was very big on understanding and understanding leading to intuitive wisdom be beneath and beyond the conceptual. But how do you practice right view? And right intention, everything from moment by moment intention, what I, you know, to the intention, what I call episodic intentions, like for just this meeting or just while I'm with this person, I'm going to incline in this wholesome way, you know, so we can get a grip on our life through its episodes, but also the overarching intentions of what are, where is my life headed? What's its purpose? What vows have I taken? Whether it's anything from simple as a marriage vow to a, a bodhisattva vow to a, you know, a real strong inclination just through my Buddhist involvement or through my meditation practice. Um, and right speech, I already mentioned how I see it as encompassing uh, all technological, um, technologically mediated expression, all email and so on, but also the arts, artistic expression and so on. And that it clearly includes listening and the whole communication field. Right action, again, I hinted at that, as being the place where I deal with uh, the place of social justice and how relationships person to person is a crucial a bridge between individual uh, action for the good and social action for the good. So, so we get a, we weave a whole picture of right action that's very rich. And right livelihood, um, certainly I, for each path factor, I cover the canonical, the traditional core, not wrong livelihood, not harming, killing, and so on. But also right livelihood as being about the movement of resources and the responsible use of resources. So every credit card statement is a moral document, right? Where we invest our money, not only how we earn our money, but how we spend it. And this brings us into the resource aspect that I used as a model from the monastics of the requisites, clothing, food, shelter, and medicine. And looking at each of those and how that becomes, it becomes to me, like when I, you know, when you look at your clothing, you're like wearing the path, <laughs> you know? It's all of a sudden, this is not an abstract out there thing. This is every moment is path. When I have a meal, I'm digesting, eating the path because I'm engaged on the planet and its resources wisely or unwisely, right? And um, 
than right effort is, uh, you know, in terms of abandoning the unwholesome and cultivating the wholesome is about mental psychological maturity. So it's, of course, it's about energy. Of course, it's developing meditative qualities is right effort, but it's also uh, out with the bad and in with the good in terms of how we are in the world. And um, so in addition to the ethical aspect, there's, uh, shall we say, the skillful understanding of the mind and the maturing of the mind. And so I speak about the relationship of contemporary psychology to Buddhist psychology and how that can be part of the whole life path, the noble whole life path. So nothing is left out, including psychotherapeutic processes. And then right mindfulness and right calm concentration or samadhi is where we begin to say, oh, that's what the, that part of the path I really get. But then what I did is I took the opportunity to go in considerable depth in each of those and breadth of practices, especially uh, people are largely not familiar with the breadth of samadhi practices that are available to them. And that samadhi is not a monolithic thing. It has many shapes, many faces, many results. And I, you know, all of this is done with careful uh, uh, linkage to the early teachings. Um, so I'll just close by saying that uh, if this incredibly, impossibly vast and, and multifaceted life that each of us is living is really all path, then for these eight things to cover it, they have to be construed in this broad encompassing way in this way that's very alive. And that's what I mean by a whole life path as a liberative, you know, way of being and as very accessible. You can start anywhere. Just pay attention to what you eat and you'll end up in Samadhi. Just pay attention to, you know, how you relate to people and you'll end up cultivating right view. It's just like that. It's, it's, whole, it's holographic. And so be encouraged. So I think I'll stop there. And I know that we're almost out of time, but I, you know, if we had more time, of course, I would uh, uh, love it to have, you know, be able to see what kinds of uh, thoughts or questions you have. But let's just benefit from what we can. So if it's okay, James, uh, to invite people to unmute. Sure. Yeah, go ahead and then and unmute if you have something to say and then mute again when you're done. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. So uh, all very interesting stuff, of course. Um, you talked about the tangle of everything is all kind of all <laughs> interconnected uh, in Dira's web to, to switch religions, I guess. Um, and you talked about the only way to, you know, get free is to somehow view that and be able to observe it. Um, but so I'm curious whether ultimately 
uh, you feel like the path leads towards um, disentanglement from the from the from the tangle, I guess, or an embracing of the of the tangle. Well, um, you know, the kind of the tangle is uh, just a fact of being a conditioned sensitive being. So as a matter of how we practice, how we meet, let's say, uh, um, our confusion or sadness or hurt, how we meet our bad habits, of course, the practice is fundamentally to become aware, to receive and let it in, let it in all the way in, no distance, and the mindfulness is knowing this and there's kindness and so on, and we can be familiar with it. And meanwhile, in our actions in the world, we're working from the outside also with our behaviors. So if, if let's say my unskillfulness tends to make me uh, uh, ignore people or be even mean or something. Now I'm also working from the outside in my behaviors. The deeper work of the mindfulness and the abandoning these kind of patterns that are so uh, can be so um, destructive um, is a matter of meeting them with this kindness and care. So if that's what you mean by embracing them, yes. On the other hand, um, uh, there's a clear understanding that freedom is possible. So there's a willingness to let go, to not hold on to them, to not attach to them. Good, thanks. Yeah. Anyone else? Maybe one, one last question. Uh, if there is. <clears throat> so I had a, another question. Did, is, the, is the third and most important book still coming or did that in the rewrite somehow get uh, incorporated into book number two? Very clever question. Uh, you know, not knowing if I would live, I did put a lot of uh, pretty deep relational Dhamma teachings in there, unpacking, in, you know, in unpacking dependent origination in relational terms, the condos in relational terms, uh, talking about the power of relational practices and so on. But I am working on uh, that book now and um, there's a lot that's not in this. Uh, but uh, um, I feel what happened in this process that I described is I ended up with a book that far exceeded what I expected. Uh, I was amazed. It, 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 uh, it elevated in its significance. So I no longer feel like, um, well, I just have to finish this because I have to finish it. It turned into something that I feel a genuine regard for. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Which I, I honestly didn't expect. Uh, so I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Mm. Yeah. Sounds interesting. I look forward to reading it. Mm. 
So thank uh, you. It, it, we, we'll, we'll wrap up. I just want to thank you, uh, Gregory, and uh, for all your years of, of service and uh, uh, neglected to mention at the beginning, uh, his um, Gregory's insight dialogues have uh, been very impactful for many, many, many people um, for uh, throughout the years for through throughout the world too. So um, well done. And uh, it's interesting to see and, and hear your story about after having practiced for decades, the, the wake up call when it comes, uh, when the rubber meets the road, how that wakes us up. And I um, just want to encourage all of us that we don't have to wait until <laughs> the universe bops us on the head and says, hey, wake up, folks. Um, and so uh, as, as he's saying, um, make every moment count. This moment has never been here before, and it'll never be here again. Uh, and you don't know how many of them you have in, in this life. So um, might as well be present for it and honor it with your Although attention. I'll tell you, I can give you some good news from the edge. This, this stuff works. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was at the edge of death, the awareness was absolutely there. Mm -hmm. When I was miserable with, you know, so weak that I couldn't really stand. I certainly couldn't sit in meditation. I couldn't sit up. The, the Dhamma as a kind of a guidance for how to be in that moment mm. and the mindfulness that I practiced absolutely worked, mm. absolutely made life workable. At times, of course, I lost it because continuous pain and so on, that's life or misery, just like the depression of misery, of course. But uh, those were short times and the power of the practice to move through uh, intense difficulty. Wow, mind-blowing, really mind-blowing. Well, you know, something, something I should say, insightdialogue.org, you can find out more about mm. the teachings, or gregorykramer.org. Mm. So you have a reference. Um, Great. Yeah, and the Thanks. book's called A Whole Life Path. Mm. Thanks to know, uh, good to know that the practice uh, kicked in uh, when it counts. All of those moments of mindfulness, they, they bear fruit. They do, yeah. So um, thank you very much. And also, I, I, one other thing I had forgotten to mention at the beginning of the evening is uh, tonight is the, the first night of Hanukkah. So for many people um, celebrating around the world, uh, miracles coming into the light and um, a time to really appreciate, appreciate all that we have in this world and uh, not, not to miss it in the, uh, in the overwhelm of all the, the dukkha that we're all dealing with. Um, this is a, a night of light and uh, thank you for being with us. So we'll, We'll just um, uh, close with a little dedication and may our coming here together touch us, deepen our own practice, ripple out to everyone we know and 
be shared for the benefit of, of all beings everywhere and this, um, this wonderful planet that, that holds us and cares for us so well.